The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 2. We're considering this great epistle, one of my favorite. If I had to pick one or two, this would be in the top three for sure. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, concluding words on this grand section about salvation through grace. Ephesians 2, beginning to read at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Certainly these are familiar words to all of us, probably many of you. Many of you young folks even know these words by heart. Let us consider them in our time. In 1729, John and Charles Wesley began at Oxford University what was to be called the Holy Club. George Whitfield also was a part of the beginnings of that club. And at that time, in all three of these young men's lives, there was a lack of understanding of the clear gospel of Christ. These were men raised in the church, raised in a religious society, at a religious school, doing religious deeds. The Holy Club had various rules to live by and rules for self-discipline, rules for strict religious matters. It focused on good works to help the needy and the poor. But unfortunately... It missed the very heart and the very essence of the true way of salvation. In a few short years, after the beginnings of that club, when the men were no longer at Oxford, all three of these men would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and would be part of the great awakening which the Western world of that time was turned upside down with the gospel. And thousands upon thousands come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. After coming to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, these men would, be, would begin to produce works in keeping with saving faith. Truly good works in that sense. Works flowing from the work of God's grace in their hearts. Not the dead works of trying to attain merit apart from faith in Christ. Well, that's just one example of the confusion that has often existed throughout church history. Concerning grace, God's grace, saving faith, and good works. And all three of those are referred to in our text. This evening I want to look at our text in light of that, a very key scriptural text, and to seek to gain a biblical view of these matters. 
Our first point is this. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. Most of you, I hope, know that well. As you know the words of this verse well. Grace, God's free unmerited favor, as the basis or ground of our salvation. And faith is the instrument of receiving salvation. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace summarizes verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. Tucker preached on this last week. He gave us that analogy of someone who is dead in trespasses and sins. He he doesn't need someone to throw him a line and he'll help and save himself. No, he's dead and needs to be made alive by the Spirit of God. You must be born again, Nicodemus was told. You must be born from above. It could be translated And so there's this desperate situation at the beginning of chapter 2 where this description of all of us, whether we're religious or not, dead in trespasses and sin in terms of our natural state apart from God. And then verse 4 comes with that critical hinge, but God. There's a famous sermon of Martin Lloyd-Jones that's entitled, But God. And it's a powerful expression of grace. We were dead in sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive because of his great love for us, even when we were dead. So, by grace summarizes our desperate situation and the fact that salvation is God's doing. Verse 10 can go on to say that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That phrase, created in Christ Jesus, carries that same Import that we've been made anew, we've been made alive, we've been created, we might say recreated spiritually by grace. The whole Bible teaches from beginning to ending that salvation is of the Lord. It's by grace. But it's also through faith. Both of these are true. By grace, that's the grounds, the the basis. It's unmerited. It's a free gift, but it is through faith. Faith describes our whole person response of receiving and resting in Christ alone for salvation. We do not do it by our good works. This not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. But notice, we do exercise faith. It's the instrument by which we receive salvation on the basis of grace. Faith involves understanding. It involves assent, giving mental assent to various truths. But it also involves trust, whole person trust, our mind, our affections, our will. Theologically, those three elements of understanding, assent, and trust have been often used by theologians to describe the full-orbed nature of faith. It's the whole person response of resting in Christ. You might say, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. That's shorthand for that wholehearted faith. We choose Christ. Someone might say, I decided for Christ. And actually, Reformed Christians, those who are Reformed in their theology, emphasize grace, shouldn't shy away from using language like, I chose Christ. 
I decided for Christ. That's all part of saving faith, except we just know that we chose Christ because he first chose us. We loved him because he first loved us. Verse 8 tells us that even our faith is a gift of God. And so we don't need to back away from the psychology of how coming to Christ feels like. When we come to Christ, it feels like, and it is truly the fact that we exercise our emotion, our will, our affections, our minds in embracing Jesus Christ because the Bible says faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ. But faith itself is a gift. And so we're back to grace. And then verse 9 tells us that the ultimate result of grace is that we have no grounds for boasting. It says, not a result of work so that no one may boast. The Bible is always emphasizing the fact that we cannot boast before God. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and we see that it is not the high and mighty of the world for the most part who are born again and trust in Christ. Not many of you were mighty and wealthy and all these kinds of things. And the conclusion of that is that no one may boast before him. It's because of his work, Christ's work, that we are saved. My own experience before truly coming to understand the gospel in high school, I can remember looking at my life from a religious point of view. I went to church every week. And I can remember thinking that, well, I'm pretty good, I think. I hope I'm good enough that when I die, if I, you know, I didn't think much about death in those days because I was healthy and young, but I pretty much thought that I was good enough. I didn't do anything really badly. I worked hard in school. I didn't have any sense of my sin before a holy God. And there probably would have been an element of lack of humility, for sure. Certainly, I I probably would have boasted if I came down to it, but, you know, in a good, humble Pennsylvania Dutch way, you know, that wouldn't have been too overt. But just in my thoughts, thinking, well, I'm not like the people at school who party and everything. I work hard at my studies. I just wouldn't have thought of myself as needing God's grace, at least very much. But when I came to faith in Christ, the grace of God just became so overwhelming to me when I understood the gospel. And I can remember coming back into that same church and uh, singing those same hymns that I had stood with my parents, singing all those years, and just magnifying the grace of God in the gospel that I am now saved because of Jesus Christ. It just undercuts all cause for boasting or glorying in ourselves. Salvation is by grace through faith. Well, that brings us to point number two. What about works then? Here's my point. Good works are never meritorious, but they are necessary. Good works are never meritorious, but they are necessary. And you might have been real clear on point one. Salvation is by grace through faith. It gets more difficult and more confusing when we talk about good works, and there's often misunderstanding about this. They are never meritorious. What do we mean by that? Well, it's what verse 9 says. Salvation is not a result of works. 
Romans 3.20 puts it this way. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By works of the law, good works of any kind, that try to keep the law as a way to merit salvation, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And that's why shortly after that, in Romans 3.23, a verse that's familiar, it says, We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A great contrast there Paul is setting up between the fact that we cannot be saved by works. They are not meritorious. We cannot look at works that way. Galatians chapter 2 emphasizes this as well. Chapter 2 in verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And we could go on in chapter 3 of Galatians to read similar text. It's not by works of the law, it's by faith in Christ alone. It's never meritorious. Now, if we step back and look at the religions of the world, we can see that this is the fundamental flaw in addition to not seeing the divine personhood of Christ. It's this whole idea of salvation by some kind of works, meriting salvation from God by achieving it yourself. That's the fundamental error time and time again. And an error that often sneaks into the church itself and brings deadness with it and and heresy, that it undercuts the gospel of grace. We cannot merit salvation. I remember I loved the book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. And I really thought it was neat this The main character of the book goes back in time from Mark Twain's day to King Arthur's court. I don't know how he does it, but he gets back there, and he's got the knowledge and the technology in his head for how to make gunpowder and guns, rudimentary guns. I just thought that was such a neat thing. And, you know, it upsets the whole balance of power in King Arthur's court. If you think of good works like somebody going back in time and making gunpowder in some way, Just think if somebody went back, if that same character would go back to King Arthur's day and be challenged to send a rocket to take someone to the moon and bring them back. You know, that's kind of the difference between good works of a type and good works that really are acceptable in God's sight. You know, that guy would need to know all kinds of computer technology and have to have all kinds of scientific knowledge in his head. He would have to have the materials that would go way beyond. It's just impossible It would just be a laughable book to think that someone could go back there and put a person on the moon. And that's, I'm just using that as as an idea of the gulf between the so-called good works of the religions of this world and what is required for a holy and righteous God. That is why good works can never be seen as meritorious. They can never be seen as meriting salvation from God. But, my point goes on, good works are necessary. That's not a contradiction. Good works, not meritorious good works, but good works 
as the fruit of saving faith. It's required. Over and over again, Scripture tells us about this. James, in somewhat different semantics than Paul, talks about faith without works is dead, being alone. Martin Luther had a hard time with that because he didn't see how to reconcile that with what Paul said in Galatians and elsewhere. But there's no contradiction. James is just emphasizing the fact that there must be fruit from saving faith. Scripture talks about these good works. In fact, we see it over and over again. Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're going to see it in Ephesians 2.10. In 1 Timothy 6.18, Christians are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Titus 2.7 says we're to be in all respects, a model, Timothy was, of good works. Or in Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now hear this last phrase. Who are zealous for good works. So we can't just throw out good works. And we can look at scripture upon scripture that talk about the necessity of good works. The fact that our good works must always be the overflow from our faith in Christ and our love for Christ. And yes, our good works will always be imperfect in this life. But that does not mean we should not seek to produce good fruits by the power of the Spirit. They will be imperfect, but Hopefully, they are more and more pleasing to God as we grow in his grace. And so, Scripture likewise often talks about Christians pleasing the Lord. And we should not shy away from language like that. We're told in Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.1, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I think that's a great verse that signifies and exemplifies the way good works are to flow in our lives, because Paul is calling these young believers to please the Lord by the way they walk. And he gets very specific in 1 Thessalonians 4. He calls them to walk and to please the Lord, and then he says, just as you are doing, just as you are doing, so they're doing it to some extent, but he goes on and adds the phrase, that you do so more and more. Not to be justified in any way before God. That justification has already happened. They've been justified once and for all by grace through faith. They're not doing these good works to merit acceptance with God or forgiveness of sins. It's not like they're saved today and they do some good works and then they're not saved and then they're saved because they did some more good works. No, but they're to be growing in a life that pleases the Lord. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in chapter 16, section 6. Notwithstanding, it says, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ. In other words, even though we are accepted, our persons are accepted through Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. It says, nevertheless, their good works also are accepted to him. 
not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that God, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. You see what the confession is saying. There are to be good works. They're imperfect in this life. Our motives are mixed. But even though we're weak in that sense, we are truly to God. If your four-year-old makes a Mother's Day card for you who are moms and brings this Mother's Day card to you and says, Happy Mother's Day, Mom. And this is this card, you know, that has the mom, the M as a W instead of an M, you know, and it's upside down and, you know, it's barely legible and the Y is backwards and there's only one P in happy, you know, and there's a picture of a flower. What mom in her right mind says, Susie, this isn't very good. You know, you, you didn't spell that right. No, the mom says, thank you, this is good. I like that as an illustration of how Christians' works please the Lord. And really, this relates to judgment on the last day. How, how can it be true that we're all going to be judged by our works? Only in the sense that our works are the fruit of our faith in Christ. And, you know, we might get a C- minus or a D plus for our works, but they're there. At least they're there. They're weak. They're imperfect. But the Father is delighted to receive his children's good works. They are a fruit of the work of Christ, and they're going to be perfected when we see Jesus face to face. But let's not throw out the calling to good works. Our goal is to be biblical in our views of grace and faith and good works. And yes, we should be careful to guard the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, but not at the expense of a right teaching on good works. This brings us to our third point. Our good works are the result of God's workmanship. Our good works are the result of God's workmanship. Verse 10 spells this out. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's just walk through the ideas that are in this verse. The first is that the idea of God as a master craftsman. We are God's, his workmanship. Have you ever watched a master craftsman at work? I remember at one point watching a glass blower and a glass craftsman make a beautiful and delicately intricate glass piece, you know, at must have been at a, muse- at a museum of some kind, but making this beautiful ornament of glass and just thinking, how does that master craftsman do that? It, it takes a great skill and a great giftedness. Well, that's the idea behind this, that we are God's workmanship. He is the craftsman, and he takes people who are dead in trespasses and sins and creates us in Christ Jesus. We are created, recreated, we might say, in Christ spiritually, made alive. And now God, the master craftsman, is reforming us and conforming us. Romans eight twenty eight says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Amazing. 
Jesus is our great example. We know we're not saved by trying to be like him. We're saved by trusting in him. But then it says the master craftsman is forming in us the very image or likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then the thought of this verse as it concludes, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, in these good works. The idea here is that our good works, flowing from saving faith in Christ, are to be seen as part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. He had it planned from the beginning that his people would be to the praise of his glorious grace, back to Ephesians 1. That the wisdom of God would be displayed to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. It's amazing when you think of that. Have you ever known a parent who had the life of their child planned for them? You know, pretty much from when the child was born. Not usually a good thing to have it that planned out. You know, it's usually some father trying to live out his sports fantasies through his child's life. You know, this child is going to be the, you know, the best football quarterback of all time. And he's got him out there at age three, you know, go for it, catch it. You know, he's, okay, now go over. This is the Green Bay Packers. This is, you know, I had someone tell me last year that at age two, he knew all the baseball cities and names by heart at age two. Now, it had to be a dad telling him how to learn all those. He could ramble them off for his parents. Oh, boy, this looks bad. That's not usually good for a parent to have their child's life all planned out. Although, we would say in either case, whether for good or ill, it's a powerful influence. But God is the perfect parent. And he has a pathway of good works planned for you and for me. He's prepared beforehand that each one of us who know Christ should walk in this planned pathway of good works. And so, the application comes looking to Jesus Christ, walk in that pathway. By grace, you've been saved through faith to walk in good works. And you think of that this week in your home, in your relationships, in your job in your school, with your friends, in your speaking, in your doing, in your thinking. Not to merit anything from God, no, because you know Jesus Christ died and rose again that you might live in him. But now, out of the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, you live out what God has planned for you in the arena of, of just where he's put you this week. Well, three points of application for us in brief. One, right doctrine leads us to right living. Right doctrine leads to right walking, we might say. There are two ways to get these good works wrong. One is to see them as meritorious, which ultimately rejects Christ as Savior, and it leads to these dead works of self-righteous external good deeds. So that's a wrong pathway. But there's another wrong pathway, and that's just throwing out good works altogether, not even really thinking about the calling of God to walk worthy of the Lord, as we're going to see in Ephesians 4 and 5. To fail to see the good works as the right and necessary fruit of saving faith, and to see 
the call of God on our lives to glorify him just where we are and to seek to please him more and more through Christ by works that show forth his praise, works empowered by faith in Christ, works flowing from glad rejoicing in God's unmerited grace in Christ. And so, right doctrine leads to right living. Seek to abound in the power of Christ. But secondly, know that all is of grace, and knowing that sets us free to live for God. Knowing that all is of grace, our salvation, even our faith, our growth in Christ, our good works, we could go on and on. All is of grace from beginning to end. Knowing that it's all of grace and that salvation is of the Lord sets you and me free to produce God-glorifying works as people made new by Christ. I kind of think of the illustration of last year's baseball race. You know, the Phillies were really hot last year, and they had the best record in baseball, 102 wins, and they were heavily favored to win the World Series, but they were eliminated in the first round of playoffs. You Phillies fans all know that. You know, there was a sense they deserved to win. They were just so good. But that's a pretty big burden to carry into the playoffs. You know, you deserve to win, then, you know, boy, you got to fulfill that. The Cardinals, on the other hand, were kind of like at the opposite end. August 25th, they were ten and a half games behind the Braves in the playoff wild card spot. For those of you who know baseball, you know what that's like. But they came back just by the skin of their teeth, and they got into the playoffs. What kind of attitude did they have? I would say it's all of grace. They didn't have anything to lose. They had gotten back into it, right? So one team, they deserved it. The other is all of grace. And you can guess who wins. You know, psychologically, that's almost impossible to win when you're that good. You know, you're going to fall on your face. I don't know if that illustration is very good, but my point is this. Salvation is all by grace. It's a free gift. And that sets us free to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Scripture repeats that over and over again. It sets us free to die to sinful self and to live for Jesus Christ today. So right where that hits you, this week, how is God calling you to no longer live for sinful self? You can do that because you're saved by grace through faith if you're trusting Jesus Christ. And finally, this point, when we see our lives as God's workmanship, we will have a whole new perspective. Verse 10 is such a powerful verse. We are God's workmanship. Do you see your life as God's workmanship? That gives a whole different perspective. God hasn't lost control of your life. God hasn't lost control of your suffering. And that new perspective gives gives us a whole new view of what our priorities might be, what we value the most, what we live for in life, how we should live to please our God much different from the message of the world. We hear this message that's different. We're loved by Christ. We're saved by grace. We are God's workmanship. He, is, he has us all planned for us to live lives to him. And so now, let's live that way. Maybe, you know, if you think of a vase, if a vase could think and a master craftsman had formed a beautiful vase, And the vase was thinking, well, this looks pretty good, you know. And then the craftsman puts the vase in the oven. 
You know, we all know that's part of the baking process for the vase. But if that vase could think, it'd be like, what's happening now? This can't be right. We all know it's part of the workmanship of the master craftsman. So whatever the circumstances of your life might be, whatever the challenges might be, what a perspective to see our lives as the workmanship of God so that we can see our circumstances as the arena in which God is forging us and preparing us for his glory in the world and in the life to come and for bearing witness to Jesus Christ here and now. To God be the glory. May that be true for each one of us. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at this amazing message of grace Amazing grace, we sing that song, we think, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? We, we lift up our hearts to you. We are overwhelmed by your goodness that you should so love us when we didn't deserve it and love us eternally. We pray that you would help us to increasingly bear fruit that is to the praise of your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.